I got it. You want me to read it? Go ahead. All right. You want to fight for it? I can. First Peter chapter two verses fourteen twelve. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, the stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that, though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, the truth is that uh, outside of Christendom, uh, the word that gets used to define that time in history when the Christian, uh, uh, the church, was at the center of culture, at the very center, and it had a privileged place in the center of culture, uh, those days are gone. And once, that, once those days are gone, whether it's here or in Europe or anywhere, uh, you're on, on, a, on a continuum, and on, on the extreme end of the continuum is martyrdom, which I don't hope for anybody, but it's very real. Very, that's happened. And then on the other end of the spectrum, the very minimum that you will suffer as a Christian is social alienation. And so to be a Christian in uh, this age that we live in right now will mean that you will feel social alienation. If you, let me put it this way, and I don't mean to be judgmental in this at all, but I'm just trying to be true to what the Bible says, is that if you are not experiencing any social alienation, no friction between you and that world that you live and walk in that is a result of your faith, then your faith is, is not, it's not real. It's just, it's uh, vaporous. And, and we, all, we all want that sometimes, do we not? I mean, if we're just honest, uh, that's okay. But you, there's going to be those times where you're going to feel that friction. Okay, so Jesus talked about this stuff. And there's three options here, basically. There's varieties of these. But uh, you can live in the world and of the world. And so if we think about that down here with our little symbol with the uh, graphics with the fish, turn this fish around and that fish is swimming with the flow and it's easier to do that. That's not a hard thing to do. There's just no difference between you and anyone else. Uh, uh, I mean, you're just going with, with what everybody else is doing. So the second one would be not in the world and not of the world. And so one way to deal with that friction is to actually get yourself out of the world, put your, this little fish out here somewhere, still swimming upstream, but not really engaging culture and not really loving God's world. In, in the way that he does. Uh, it's sort of giving up on the world. And um, 
And, and another variety of that would be somebody who's a moral fanatic. And, oh, God save us from moral fanatics. Amen? Yes. Amen? Yeah. So we don't need that. And then there's what Jesus said, which is you are in the world, you're to live in the world, but you're not to be of the world. So you're going to be swimming upstream. And it's, of the three, it's by far the hardest. And that's why, you know, sometimes we wimp out. It's hard to uh, do that well, but that's what our, we're called to do. And we need wisdom in that way. Now, if you're a parent, uh, Tim and Andrea will just use an example, but <laughs> anyway, but you've got, you've got kids, a parent, you know exactly the things here that we're talking about because you don't want your child, every parent that I've ever met does not want their child to always swim with the flow. And so you'll hear every parent at some point saying, well, hey, just because Johnny does it doesn't mean you get do it or you have to do it, right? Have we all heard that from our parents? It's something like that. So you get that. And then you wouldn't want your children to be in sort of a self-righteous mode of standing apart from the world and looking down at other people. Um, that wouldn't be good. You want your children to be in the world, but have something special about them that gives them the strength to stand up, to say no in certain situations. When and it's not, we're going to talk about this. It's not just a moral. Uh, morality thing going on here. There's something deeper than that that's going on. And it has to do with character and how character is formed in us. And every parent wants character for their children, but they don't want that hard edge to it that doesn't have any love in it. I mean, that's really what we're after, and it's what God is after for us. So you get it. If you're a parent, you get it. And Peter has wisdom on this. He's, uh, we don't, we're guessing he's in his 70s, maybe 60s or 70s when he writes this letter, and there's persecution going on in his world, and he's trying to help those Christians navigate it. And the key verse for First Peter is found in chapter 5, verse 12. He wants to encourage us to stand strong in the true grace of God. That's what we want to stand strong in. So, let's just, here's our outline for this morning. Uh, true self-living, which is what uh, we're after, is, as opposed to false self-living, is it, it, we're going to talk about your identity and then how to live and then your real home and see how that all ties together. We're going to be just in verses 9 and 10 and 11 and 12. Okay, so let's begin. I'm going to read these verses and we'll just walk through the um, what comes out of it. And it has to do with identity. Verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So let's look at those markers that are given there. These are our identity markers. There's really nothing here that tells you how to live, but there is a lot of things that tells you who you are. So here's, here's the five of them that we can see there. Uh, a chosen race. Let's start with that. Uh, the NIV and a lot of translations will say a chosen people. The old King James Version says a chosen generation. The Greek word can be translated different ways, and race is also one of those words. I chose it because we live in a racially charged world right now, and, and there's just a lot every day on this one. So um, here's, here's how we might think about it. Race is typically defined by blood or by skin color, and you know, and then there's there's stereotypes that, that flow out of that. That, uh, but what 
the, what Peter is saying is it doesn't matter what your skin color is or your blood type is or whatever your background is. You are part of a new chosen race. Chosen meaning not by, you're not choice, as in USDA choice. You're not that. Because God loves the weakest and the smallest. And he chose Israel in the Old Testament, not because they were great, but because they were, he just loved them. Remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But um, it, it, it's, a, it's really powerful that in the early church, you had all these different ethnic groups with all their prejudices, just like we do today, not in the, in the culture, and that the church was comprised of people of different ethnicities, different races. So you have a new race, not based in, in blood, but in the spirit of God who makes people new and gives them a new identity. So here's, here's how I would like to say it, and that uh, if... Um, Let's, let's take, take race, that I have a greater, uh, a deeper connection with somebody who is of another physical race. If they're in Christ and I'm in Christ, we have something that binds us together more than our own racial identities. So I'm, take, take the average Caucasian person on the street. I have more in common with my African-American Christian brother than I do with them. He is my brother. They are not my brother. This is, this is just biblical definition. It's gonna, this is going to help, I think, clarify it. Uh, okay, so I'm an American, and if I define my identity that way, I need to be clear that if there's a Russian or a Syrian who is in Christ, I have greater affinity with them than I do with my non-Christian American. This is, this is what it gets down to here. And uh, we've got to get this stuff flushed out of us. Okay, so there's an election coming up. Did you know that? If I am a Democrat and I am in Christ, I have more in common with my Republican friend who is in Christ than I do with my fellow Democrats who are not. See how it works? That's what it means to be in Christ. And you don't have to like everybody in Christ. You have to love them. You have to. Or you're not in Christ. Because that's what Christ does. So I have, I have friends who are 49er fans. <laughs> and I have to love... Should we draw the line there? <laughs> no. No, but it's, it, it's true there too. That I have more in common in Christ than I do in my football team loyalties. It's way bigger. All right, we're a royal priesthood. Um, some of you grew up Catholic and you're thinking, oh, the last thing I want to be is a priest, you know, but uh, you are a priest if you're in Christ. And the way priesthood gets defined is that you represent people to God, meaning you pray for people. And if you're in a workplace or in a school, you pray for those people in your workplace or school and you are being priestly. That's a priest that does that. And you, so you represent people to God, and you represent God to people because you will have opportunities to talk about God at times. You know, today, after this service, we're going to do a prayer walk over here in the new neighborhood across the street, and we'll be doing priestly stuff there. So those of you who uh, will, will participate in that will be priests today. But if we're going to, a holy nation, if we're going to be um, priests representing God, 
we should resemble him a little bit. He's holy. And I know that that's a word that's really way bigger than we are. But we grow in that way. And we begin to look like God in Jesus Christ. We are God's special possession. Think of it this way, that if you had your house was on fire and you could only go into your house and get one item, what would you grab? And thinking of it theologically, if God's house were on fire, he would go in and grab you. You are his treasured possession. You're special. And and I say that in the, the, the royal we, all of us. And then Peter can't help it because he's received so much of God's mercy on, on his own. He's such a failure and so loved. And that's the mercy of God for us, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So those are our identity markers. And they define uh, uh, who we are. God wants to tell us who we are before he tells us what to do. Okay, so where does that all come from? Well, real quick, from the Old Testament. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, God says, and how I carried you on eagle's wings. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful image? Just beautiful poetry on eagle's wings. And brought you into myself, to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. You'll see that there. And although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's where Peter is coming from here. And here's our our map, our journey in exile that we've been looking at. And this is the old reality. And the new covenant is what happens when we cross the bridge and we enter into life in Christ. And we begin this uh, circuitous journey that really isn't circuitous because it is going somewhere, but it is not a straight line. So uh, in Christ, the new covenant, uh, he is where we find life as opposed to keeping the law, which was the old covenant. Now, um, I want to tie this into parenting because well, a lot of us are parents and I think it helps us to make sense out of what God has said to us. So if you're a, a, a parent, um, uh, there's, a, there's a common way of doing it in the Bible that we find God doing with us and that is that he tells you who you are before he tells you what to do. And you might think about how, how you do this in your home with your children. Do you just yell at them? And say, I know sometimes we have to do that, but do you just yell at them and tell them, no, you shouldn't do that? Or do you stop and say, look, this is who you are, and let's talk about who you are, and then we'll address the behavior thing. Because God almost always, I, I want to say always, but I, I don't have the statistics on it, he, he tends to tell us who we are, and then what we do or what we should do comes out of that. If you don't do that, you run the risk of being a legalistic parent, of just being a do's and don'ts parent. And I tell you what, you will be harsh on your children. You will violate God's commandments in that way by being harsh with your children. Tell them who they are. And don't tell them they're not good. That's, I mean, that's... Build them up. It's hard being a kid today, you know. It's hard being an adult today. Hopefully you come here on a Sunday morning and you feel like you've been encouraged in the reality of your identity. So you build up their identity. One of my favorite authors uh, who died a few years ago, a guy named Brennan Manning, he said, and I I say this uh, in a calculated way, because you'll you'll hear it, I hope you hear it in the right way, and that is, he says, don't let anybody should on you. Okay? Kind of catches your imagination there a little bit. Don't let anybody should on you. And I want to just qualify that because the Bible does have lots of oughts in it and shoulds, but they're always preceded by who you are 
So tell, tell your kids who, you, who they are, remind them who they are, and then you can tell them what they should do. It's uh, the, the commandment that we, uh, the, the section that we just looked at here in Exodus 19 is right before, guess what chapter? Exodus 20. Exodus 20 has the Ten Commandments in it. So before God gives people the thou shalt not, he tells them who they are, who they are, their identity, and then living out of that identity, you have these great commandments. And by the way, the Ten Commandments begin not with thou shalt not, but with I am the Lord thy God who loved you enough to take you out of slavery. So it's, when we only go to the commandments, we lose so, so much. It's hard. Well, um, my dad, real quick, was, uh, I was not uh, a very good uh, high school kid. And uh, however you measure that, I, was, I didn't, didn't do well, didn't perform well. And I, I remember very little of what he told me in the should department. But I do remember one thing he told me in the who you are department. And it was about himself. And he told me that when he was a teenager, there were just a lot of things that he wouldn't do. And the reason he would not do them was because he knew he would hurt his dad if he did. And that got to my heart like nothing else. No, no should could ever do. And it, it's just... It's that relationship thing that you just, it's the reason, it's the big reason behind why we say no to things or yes to things. All right, so how do we live? Um, Let me go back here. How do we live? Verse 11. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, foreigners and exiles, you know, if you, if you live out of this identity that God tells you who you are, you're going to feel like a foreigner or an exile. That's where we started. There's no way to receive all that identity, have it steeped into your soul, marinated in it. This is who I am. Wake up every day and say, this is who I am, and not have that sense of being an exile, because that's not what the world does. So you're going to feel different. And here's, here's the commandment that... that Peter gives to the exiles is to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. You know, it's so much easier to live down here in this old reality. You, you don't have, you have the sinful desires, but you just give in to them. There's no, there's no war that's being waged against you. At least you don't have a feel of it. A war being waged against your soul. But when you're walking this journey of faith, and it's tough, there's temptation and testing, uh, there's, there's places where we get sidetracked. When you're doing the faith thing, it, you know that what it feels like. It's really, really hard. And um, the war against your soul, just really important to remember that there is a war going on and you're part of it. That it's, it really is a, a battle going on. If you don't think there's a battle for your soul, you're being very naive. <laughs> very, very, very naive. Uh, you're, you're not paying attention to, uh, any attention to vast areas of Scripture that say there's a real war going on for your soul. And God loves your soul so much. And you're not paying attention. So it's a wake-up call um, to that whole thing. And the early church, uh, when it came to them trying to figure this thing out and how they could say no. And they had different temptations than we do today. Do you know, everybody in this room is one click away from pornography all the time, 24 hours a day. You know, are you on guard? You don't think there's a war for your soul? 
And there's a, you're one move away from adultery. You're one whatever from sex outside of marriage, which are the real big things in our culture. Our state has uh, said I mean, it's okay to smoke marijuana and whatever, but we're no longer in Christendom, are we? The culture no longer supports the things that God supports. So you're on this journey of faith. It's very, very difficult. So early church, this, this will offend you, but it's just history, so I don't care. <laughs> yeah. Nine, these are nine markers that historians have identified as um, just what the early church what they did, how they, how they walked differently. Christians were different. They said no to the gladiatorial entertainment. Do you know that was bloodthirsty stuff? And if you've watched Gladiator, which I think probably most of us have, Russell Crowe, all that, that was a lot of blood. And Christians would say, that's not entertainment. Those are people in the image of God. They will not go there. And what do we do with our, our video games? Is any of that is bloody. Now, I'm just telling you what the early Christians said. They were not going to go there. And they didn't serve in Caesar's military. That's the way it was. I'm not making this stuff up. They didn't abort their children. They empowered women. There was no sex outside of marriage. That was off limits. They were against same-sex behavior. They gave to the poor. They mixed races and classes. And they believed that Christ was the only way to salvation. Now, there's something on that list here to offend everybody in this room, and I know it, whether you're on the left or the right, left or right, whatever. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It cuts across whether you're liberal or conservative. That's, but this is just history. This is how they interpreted God's word to them, and we should at least listen to that. But the point is that you can't just reflect culture. You have to be an alternate to culture. And that's where the friction will come in that Peter is talking about. A life, how do you live that life with friction? Well, you live it with God's help. Let me read for you the next verse, and we're getting towards the end here. Live such good lives among the pagans, among those who don't believe, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and then glorify God on the day he visits us. So you have this kind of a odd thing where they're going to accuse you of doing wrong, but they're going to glorify God in the future when it's all revealed. So here's, here's how I would read that, is that when you walk as an exile in your true identity in Jesus Christ, doing that which he has called you to do, you're going to feel that friction, and uh, you're going to get accused. Part of that friction will be you'll get accused of something. But that there will be other people who will come up to you and say, wow, I really appreciate it you're standing firm. Have you had that happen in your life? I mean, that's basically what we're saying here. You'll always have, when you live for Christ, you'll always have people that you, that you offend, and you'll always have people that are attracted to what you've done. It's part of the deal. So, a uh, little story. When I was in business uh, years ago, in the early 90s, I was on the board of the YMCA. Not, not this one here, but... And by the way, I have nothing against the YMCA. Um, but they do have, like any organization, they've had some mission drift. started in the 1890s to help young men learn how to be young men in a culture that was not encouraging to be young men, and it was done with a Christian philosophy. And now we call it the why. We've kind of drained out all of that, and we just call it the why. Well, that, that was going on. That's been going on for a long time. But um, I was on this board with others, and... Uh, professional people, and uh, we were at a retreat, 
And, you know, I know that there's plural, uh, pluralism is very real. It was then and it's more now than then, in some ways at least. And there was this conversation at the retreat about um, uh, something to do with, with sexuality and gender stuff that probably different then than it is now. And I just said, look, I said, our roots, our identity as an organization are in helping become more clear and giving people an alternative to what culture is saying on this. And it seems to me that what we're, what we're doing here is not giving people an alternative. We're just reflecting the values of culture back to them. And what we need to do is present something that is a, a healthy alternative to what culture is giving them. That would be true to our calling. And when I said all of that, I got... Uh, didn't get applause, but you just feel that, feel that thing, like you're the guy in the room. You're the guy. That guy. And uh, there's that social alienation thing, that friction, and little comments and looks and all that stuff. But after the meeting was over, I had a couple of people, including the director that came up to me and said, the director said that I really appreciated that you took a stand there because that's why I got into being the YMCA, you know, into my, my calling and a few other people. But most of the people were offended. And that is what happens. When you uh, walk with Christ, or when you uh, take a stand, hopefully I did it in grace, and I know I offended people, and I know that people were attracted to where it was coming from. All right, last thing is about home. And home is... Uh, a special place for all of us. It, it is the one place where our identity is most shaped in, in life. And don't, and, you know, there's no place like, I mean, there's all kinds of sayings that we can go to here. No place like home. Dorothy. And, but where I go to is this place called the Shire. You know where that is? Where is it? Middle Earth, right? New Zealand. <laughs> you know, the books are better than the movies. Uh, uh, so there's these little creatures called the hobbits. And they're halflings. They're, they're small. And they live in this place called the Shire. And the Shire is a very, very homey place. Uh, Bilbo Baggins, one of the heroes, makes the statement. I think it's to Frodo. He says that uh, it's a dangerous business going out your front door. <laughs> you know, and these hobbits are very... They're not adventurous. They're the opposite of adventurous, Right? And uh, they're not very significant. They're not very important. They just want to live out their lives and mind their own business and not pay attention to the bigger things that are going on in the big world. And then one day, the winds blow, and there's an evil wind, and there's something that's coming against the evil wind. And they end up aligning themselves, these little hobbits, a few of them at least, align themselves and associate with these high and angelic beings from across the Western Sea, Uh, in the form of wizards, but there's symbolism in all this. And they go on an adventure, something that hobbits never do. And they go uh, through uh, great trials and tribulations and and, uh, uh, huge costs of, of life and limb and all the rest, and it's such a drama. But in the end, they are triumphant. And then the point I'm trying to make here is they come home, and home is different. In truth, home has not changed, but they have. And this is what it means. They're now exiles. They're just like what Peter's talking about here. They are exiles, and they get misunderstood by their fellow hobbits when they come home. I know you guys like this um, map thing. I've had some good comments on it, and okay. How about this one? So 
this is, uh, here's Mordor, which is the source of all evil. And uh, they, 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 I, the journey, you, know, you recognize some of these names. The Shire is not on here, but it's up in this area, right up in, yeah, right up in here. And um, as, they, as they begin to live out and resettle after their, all of their adventures and they realize there's something different in them and that people misunderstand them, they notice that they're not content as they once were. And they would wander down to the sea, to the ocean, the western coast here, and uh, they would look out upon the sea. This is at the end of the third uh, trilogy, the third book. Look out upon the sea and they would sing songs. And they, of course, were changed and they sang much better than they used to. But one of the uh, verses in the songs they sang was, We still remember we who dwell in this land beneath the trees, thy starlight on the western seas. They look across the sea and they think about where their real home is, where their real identity comes from. And their hearts are stirred with longings that are deeper than they ever, ever, ever had in their little hobbit holes. And that's what makes them different. And all of their friends wonder why they're so peculiar. Well, they're exiles. They're foreigners now. And they're on a journey, but they have deeper longings than they ever had. And in Jesus Christ, he gives you deeper longings than those sinful desires that wage against your soul. Those are superficial, folks. You each have a deeper longing for God. He has put it there. Give in to it. That's my plea. The plea of God this morning is give in to those deeper longings of his love for you. Let's pray. Father, you have given us a home in the person of Jesus Christ. You have given us or offered us a new identity. And there are sinful desires that wage against our soul that are very real. But if we can absorb, if we can steep in, marinate in that new identity that you give us that comes from our real home, we have a shot, Lord, of being people who are larger who laugh louder, who cry more, and who sing better, like the hobbits. More alive, more human. Lord, I pray that each of us now would have our hearts open to you and to the deeper longings of our heart. In Christ's name, amen.